Hi, everybody. We have a super special treat for you today because we're going to be talking to a man that I have lovingly dubbed the Druid. And I stumbled across him as a result of uh, one of the people I interviewed on Gaia, a man, a wonderful man, wild man named Daryl Shun. Daryl turned me on uh, to the Druid's work. And so I, I can't wait for you to meet him because it's time that we have true wisdom and and. Uh, you're going to hear the history here in a moment, and you'll see what I'm talking about. And I think you're going to fall in love with him like I have. So let's just dive into it. I hope you don't mind my calling you the Druid. I, that's just something I feel about your energy and your wisdom. Are you okay with that? That's that's the greatest compliment I could, I could be offered, Regina. Thanks for being <laughs> I love it. And another thing, your name is an Irish name. You're Irish. You spoke, yes. spoke health, uh, you spoke Gaelic mm -hmm. until yeah. you were, well, off to college. Uh -huh. However, um, I don't really know how to say your name correctly. Olar, Olera. 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 Yeah. Okay. Sean Olera. And right. shall we call you Friar or Brother? Just call me Sean. Sean. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to tell everybody why in, in just a moment, because your background's incredible. PhD in transpersonal psychology. You get how we understand each other and think. Also a Catholic priest and, as I said, a druid at heart. So, Sean, can you first give us a little idea of your own background and how you became who you are today, starting from your youth in Ireland? Sure. And so I'm the firstborn of a firstborn of a firstborn. So my father was the firstborn in his family. He was the firstborn in his family. And so I grew up with my great grandmother still alive. I was 10 years old before she died. So on my father's side, uh, I knew my great grandmother very well. And she was really a Christian mystic. Uh, for her, uh, particularly, she had a devotion to Mother Mary. And Mother Mary was more real to my great grandmother than you, you and I are to each other right now. There was like she would hold these conversations with Mary aloud, to which I was privy. And then on my, on my mother's side, I had a grandfather whom I called Daddy Jim, who was literally a druid. He was a great Irish step dancer. He was a consummate storyteller, and he was a great musician. And so for the first six years of my life, I was actually raised by my grandparents. And so I was around my great grandmother during that time, you know, and kind of uh, absorbed her mystical brand of Catholicism, rather than the kind of the dogmatic fear-based one. And then subsequently, I was with my grandfather. And so uh, he had this fund of um, Irish mythology. And so I just bathed in that. And so uh, when I went to school then, uh, I'd been raised kind of uh, bilingually, uh, Gaelic and English. <clears throat> and all of my education in high school was through, was through uh, Gaelic. I learned math through Gaelic. I learned English through Gaelic. And then I went to college. I went to the seminary when I finished high school, spent eight years in the seminary studying theology and scripture. And then I did a Bachelor of Science degree uh, with a double major in pure mathematics and mathematical physics. And then at age 26, uh, I went to Kenya. And I had the privilege of learning four different um, uh, African languages. And I was fascinated by folklore, particularly by proverbs and by stories. And that's an area I can say a lot more about if you, if you wish. Uh, so storytelling, for me, stories are the archived wisdom of a culture. And mythology is like how great wisdom traditions you know, hold their, their kind of insights. 
And modern people think that mythology means that it's the ravings of uncivilized, you know, natives who don't know any better. And it is not what it is. Mythology is literally the archived wisdom of a culture. And if you really want to get to know any culture, go to their proverbs and their stories. The proverbs are like the distillation of the of the uh, of the wisdom, and the stories are the kind of the the entertainment and the uh, kind of um, stories are three facets. They're informational, they're bonding exercises for the group, and they're much more importantly, they're transformational. So the great storyteller is not somebody who is just dealing in information, but somebody who is creating transformation in the listener. Because you listen to a great storyteller, not just with your ears, but with your, your heart and with your soul. So I differentiate between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is information which is generated by the sensorium and processed by the brain. Whereas wisdom is information or data that's generated by the heart and processed by the soul. And so storytelling, the great storyteller is somebody who can invite us into the proper use of our imagination, which is another word which is constantly misunderstood. We think that imagination is the ability to make up stuff that's not real. That is not imagination. That is fantasy. Imagination is the ability to volitionally shift my state of consciousness, enter into different dimensions, interact with entities and energies that reside in those other dimensions, learn from them, cross-fertilize, and then bring that learning back into this world, you know, and seed it into the, into the culture. And so that's what the great storytellers do. They seed the culture with information which has been gleaned from soul travel into other dimensions. Thank you. Thank you. What a great start to one question. You've already put a later framework for, I think, the conversation we'll have and the conversations in the future, because you're coming from a place of what I consider to wisdom. And I don't mean to put you on the spot or embarrass you in saying that, but that's just how I find you. And it's a rare commodity in what is now being called um, simply a post-truth world. Not, and I'd like to extend it to uh, what might even be called a post-wisdom world from what you just said. And so to, thank you for sharing your background. I mean, it's, it's really, um, it's very impressive because it shows not only the largeness of the being and heart, but also of the intellect. And to be able to marry those, to articulate themes in these troubled times to people is critical. And you do that. You have your sermons you do on Sunday online right now. So people will be able to kind of check in with you when they want to. But I asked you to be on this uh, program with me. And I said, I really would like you to share with us the the thing uh, that you give the most priority to in these times as the greatest challenge slash greatest opportunity, one or the other or both, because I know you have such a breadth that could be anything. So I would like to pose that question to you now and have you go ahead and share with us the answer to that in our conversation will be based on that. Sure, sure Pat. So I just want to pick up on one more to use and then get into your, answering your question specifically. You mentioned the post-truth world. So again, I've got a very different definition of truth because I think that uh, something can be factual but not true and something can be true but not factual. So here's how I define truth. Something is true if it transforms me and aligns me with God and something is ultimate truth if it transforms me radically and aligns me permanently with God. 
So a factoid is not true in my sense of the word. It's merely a data point, like the Dow Jones is whatever it is today. That's a factoid. Am I transformed radically by that realization? Absolutely not. And so it's something that doesn't have to be factual in order to be true. And my favorite example of that is the great story that Jesus tells in Luke's gospel of the Good Samaritan. He was being asked by somebody, who is my neighbor? And being Jesus, he didn't answer with a theological kind of a treatise. He answered in, in a story and in a parable. He said, there was a man one time going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was mugged, and he was left for dead at the side of the road. And one of the priests from the temple was coming down, and he saw this fellow Jew at the side of the road, and he passed by. Because for a priest to touch a dead body would render him unclean. He couldn't enter the sanctuary subsequently. So he passed by. And then a Levite, they were like the, um, the temple police went down, saw a fellow Jew dying at the side of the road, ignored him and passed by. And then a Samaritan, who were the sworn enemies of the Israelites at that stage, sees him, picks him up, tends to him, puts him on his own donkey, takes him down to Jericho, uh, looks after him and picks up the tab. And then Jesus says, who was neighbor to the one who fell among the robbers? The, the answer is obvious. Now, was that a true story? If you went to the temple and you checked with the priests and the Levites and found out, is there anybody from here that went down to Jericho in the last week? And they say, no, didn't happen. And you go to Jericho and there's only five or six inns in Jericho. And you check with all the innkeepers that such and such a story happened here in the last few weeks. Absolutely not. So was it factual? Possibly not. Was it true? Absolutely true. Because the people who heard that story were radically transformed by the story. So in that sense, it's true. So with that as kind of a kind of a, a launching pad, I now want to go into answering your question directly. And that is, you know, what is the greatest issue of our time, in my opinion? And I would say it is the radical capture of storytelling. And the twin kind of results of that are unremitting propaganda of a particular story and censorship of all of the other stories. And that for me is the great dilemma in which we find ourselves. It's the radical capture of the storytelling platforms and the inability of the wisdom traditions of the world you know, to dispense their own kind of uh, insights uh, into life. Uh, so in that sense, there are meme makers who've captured the platforms. You know, and uh, a meme is to a culture what a gene is to an organism. So any organism is simply composed of a jigsaw puzzle of particular you know, genes that are configured in a particular way. One of them, one configuration produces a bunny rabbit, another configuration produces an oak tree, a third configuration produces a human being. And so that's how genes create organisms. And the same way, memes create cultures. So you put together a bunch of memes and suddenly you've got a new version of what it means to be human. And that has been captured. The people with a very nefarious agenda have become the meme makers of our time. And they're spinning stories that are, you know, uh, secularizing society and suffocating the divine. And they're censoring any other story. And so we're living in a, a society which has been demythologized in the very important sense of that. It means that not just that they're taking away the weird old stories, but that they're taking out the ability of the imagination to travel interdimensionally and to access information which has been archived by other dimensions, other creatures, other beings throughout all of history and throughout the entire, the entire cosmos. Yes, Sean, thank you for that. And 
I watched another video of yours and took very close notes because I thought it's something that would be applicable to um, future conversations, but I think perhaps the conversation today. And you were talking in, in the, it was one of the sermons um, you did. I think you call it something else. Uh, homily. Um, uh, homily. Homily, yes. It's one of the homilies you gave, and it had to do with the problem with evil. And I think we need to touch into that right now because um, the word keeps popping up, and I'm guessing if someone who does keeps close uh, close uh, look at um, international algorithms in different languages, I think the word evil has been used more in the last few years than probably up till now in history. And so we need to look at it square in the eyes. You, you already alluded to the fact uh, that there are those with nefarious agendas, they're doing their thing. Some people don't want to talk about it, some do. I would like you to explain to us what you think is going on in your own understanding. Okay, that's a great, great question, Regina. And uh, my style, as you may know at this stage is, I like to reduce metaphors and analogies and parables and stories to articulate my perspectives. So here's a few uh, analogies and uh, perspectives here. The first one is that I think every little infant is born into planet Earth at one end of a huge spectrum. And the spectrum goes from service to self at one end to service to others at the other end. And we're all born at the service to self end. Otherwise, we would not survive infancy. So every little infant, you know, needs a mother's breast, needs milk, needs comfort, needs cuddling. And so we're born at this end of the spectrum where we crave, you know, self-satisfaction and we cannot survive without that. But as we grow, we're meant to move along that spectrum and at some stage go over the 50% mark into where focus much more on service to others the great Mother Teresa of the world, or the Buddha figures, or the Mahatma Gandhi figures, or the Martin Luther King Jr. figures, where it's ser service to others. And full enlightenment, as far as I'm concerned, is the radical realization that there is only, there is only God. So I talk about three levels of self. There's what I call the role self. So this is a guy with an Irish accent called Sean, who's playing a particular role in this particular incarnation. That's the role self. But within that, and much more ancient, eternal, unborn, and undying, is what I call the soul self, the holographic fractal of source, which you know is the driving force of this uh, guy called Sean in this incarnation, but pre-existed him and will post-exist him. And then the third level is, I call it the source self. And if I were to use a metaphor, it's like, uh, God is the ocean, the soul is a holographic fractal of the ocean, so it's a single wave that washes up, washes up onto a beach. And then the individual ego is like the foam that's deposited at the end of the wave and remains on the beachhead for a few moments until it disintegrates under the sun. And then another wave comes up, another incarnation, and captures the foam. So in that sense, you know, that's the realization of the fully enlightened, the fully the person who understands that it is service to self is ultimately service, uh, service to other is ultimately service to self because every self is an articulation of the divine. So that's one, that's one model. Evil then is being stuck at the, uh, um, the A street level of the service to self, making constant selfish decisions rather than thinking what the effects are going to be in the future. The Native Americans have this great saying that you should make all of your decisions today based on the, the sequelae, the results for the seventh generation yet to be born. 
but mostly we're being taught to make selfish, you know, consumer bobble dangling kind of decisions about the now. And so that's the first definition or the first analogy of evil. It is something, it is not inherent to the system. It was not created by God. It's this the, is, yeah. May I say something? May I ask sure. you that? This has been the great conundrum because I was raised a Lutheran, which I call just a very dry, boring version of Catholicism, right? And um, basically, we were, and we were all captured to believe if you cannot conform to one certain belief, you are a sinner. It doesn't matter if you're right out of the womb. And I remember asking my mother, mother about that. Um, so here we are with the notion of some of the, the, the treachery from the old gods that we are born sinners. You're dispelling that right now. And I want you to please dispel that, um, continue dispelling. And I also want to say one thing. When, because of your accent, when yeah. you say God, it sounds like guide. You say guide. And so I'm just letting people know it with God. <laughs> we need to have a, a glossary of terms at the end of this interview, Regina. <laughs> no, that's the only one because okay. our viewers are very familiar with the word guides and work with their guides. So, okay. yes. <laughs> so if you can please continue on with the notion. Yeah. So let me use a few more. more original sin, so to speak. Yeah. Right. Up in my, my hallway, I've got this great um, painting of uh, the touch of the master's hand. Have you ever heard of that? That no. poem, The Touch of the Master's Hand. It's a story about an auctioneer who's auctioning off the artifacts in a, in a home. And uh, he picks up this old fiddle and it's, it looks worthless. And he says, what am I bid for this fiddle? A dollar? Two dollars? Two dollars going once? Two dollars going twice? And all of a sudden, an old man walks up from the back of the room and he said, can I play a tune in it? And they hand him the fiddle. He takes the fiddle and he starts playing. And this most extraordinary music emanates from the, the fiddle. And he hands it back. And the inoxious says, what am I bid for this fiddle? 2,000? 3,000? 3,000 once? 3,000 twice? <laughs> and the title of it is The Touch of the Master's Hand. Yes. Now, it reminded my grandfather because he was a great fiddle player. But a fiddle is built to produce great music. But in the hands of a neophyte, it's going to create squeaking. The squeaking is not native to the fiddle. It's the result of somebody who doesn't know how to play it, you know, messing around with it. But when it's in the hands of a master, it delivers extraordinary music. So in some sense, that's another image. You know, life is a, a musical instrument that God bestowed on us. She gave every single one of us a unique, you know, uh, instrument to play life with. You know, and we can play it well or badly. It was, our, it was crafted to be played really, really well so that we can join in the kind of a, the cosmic symphony. But instead of that, we play it selfishly. Everybody wants to be kind of the lead violinist in the group, you know, and to kind of capture the attention of everybody else. So that would be another model. Evil comes out only when somebody who doesn't know how to play the instrument is in charge of the fiddle and wants to kind of grab the, the highlights. But right now, Sean, that seems like that's exactly who's in charge of the game. Right. It's people that don't know how to play it properly and people who are self-serving. And now it's affecting all of humanity on so many levels, we can't even articulate them all. But I thought we would um, begin with looking at, I know that in from what I understand from watching another video of yours, um, 
you believe it's not just humans. There are all different types of entities that are playing their hand out here and playing the fiddle poorly. Yes. So let's talk about the spectrum of what you perceive to be at the top of this, this ruling. Uh, we'll just call it ruling order of people. I don't want to call them elites, right. but ruling order. So um, I'm going to kind of go well cosmically and then come back in kind of planetarily. Um, it doesn't make any sense to me that we who live on a planet which is just 4.6 billion years of age in a universe which is 13.8 billion years, that we have the most sophisticated life form in the entire universe or that the universe is empty of life apart from this little planet Earth. This ludicrous notion that the source of all that is, like looking down through the trillions of galaxies and just picking out a particular galaxy called the Milky Way, and then of the, the billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy is picking out our sun. And of the planets in attendance upon our sun picks out one particular planet called planet Earth and then chooses a particular race or a particular religion. Like in Catholicism, they say, extra ecclesiam nulla es salus. Outside the Catholic Church, there is no redemption. You've got to be one of us or you're damned. Or Judaism thinking that they're the chosen people. You know, uh, that notion that God plays favorites is ludicrous. So there's life all over the cosmos. And if there are parts of the cosmos which are literally three times older than planet Earth, it only makes sense that there are life forms which are much more advanced than we are. Now, there was a very famous uh, Russian scientist some years ago who talked about typologies of civilizations. And he said, a type one civilization is a civilization which has learned to harvest the energies of its own planetary system, but to do it ecologically. A type two civilization is one which is able to harvest the energies of its entire solar system and do it ecologically. And a type three civilization is one that could do it for its entire galaxy. Now, imagine beings with that particular ability. Now, if such a civilization were stuck at the service to self end of the spectrum and they have this extraordinary technology, then planet Earth might just be a toy for these people. They might choose to intervene well or badly. And many of the great mythologies of the world, including the Bible itself, talks about the fact that in some senses, life on planet Earth was seeded from elsewhere. And in fact, the co-discoverer of the kind of the, uh, the double helix, you know, DNA molecule, Francis Crick was interviewed one time and he said, he was asked, how did life arrive on planet Earth? And he said, it was seeded. And that's how was it seeded? And he said it from directed panspermia. And the interviewer asked, what do you mean directed panspermia? He said there was specially designed craft that brought seeds of life onto planet Earth and then evolution took over at that stage. Now the Bible in the story of the Garden of Eden is talking about the intervention of some kind of sky beings or God beings or whatever. It's called in the Bible Elohim, which is a plural. It is not a singular. And it means actually the powerful ones and it is mistranslated constantly as God. It's a title for powerful ones. And so is it possible that planet Earth itself has been seeded, has been watered, has been weeded, has been fertilized, and has been genetically modified from time to time by other you know, uh, life forms? You know, and in some senses, we're their progeny in the very same way that we are now learning to do the same thing. So the question then becomes, what might the agenda of such beings be? And I go back to what Europeans did, particularly to Africa in the 1500s, 1600s. 
So from this tiny little continent of Europe, there were people who went as colonialists to grab land. There were people who went to conquer for king and country. There were people who went there as anthropologists to study languages and cultures. There were people who went there to try to upgrade the local economies. There were people who went there to try to intervene with medical issues. So there were people who went there thinking that could bring Christianity. So there were totally different agendas from the same little place called Europe into the continent of Africa. Now, I have a belief system that that may well be the case as well, that there are beings with different agendas who have, you know, arrived on planet at various stages. Some of them, you know, they love us and they're trying to upgrade us and prevent us from destroying ourselves. And others may be, in fact, trying to harvest us because they have, um, they have reached a place in their technology where they have no sense of humor, they have no uh, conscience, you know, they have um, literally their sexual organs have atrophied. They don't have mouths anymore or ears anymore because they've been so technologically uh, focused that they've created a transhumanism and they're paying the results of it. And maybe they're coming back in time in order to harvest us and to see if there is another way they could spin off a second timeline, which doesn't involve a nuclear holocaust or the disintegration of the human species into what I call homo sociopathicus. Now, if that is true, there may well be representatives of those people who are governing on their behalf, knowingly or unknowingly, that they're driven by this kind of a greed and violence in which they're prepared to literally destroy planet Earth and subjugate everybody for an agenda of being some kind of a ruling class. I hope you're enjoying this video because if you are, there are dozens more like it on my site, all supported by people like you. So if you'd like to keep this work rolling in and join our community, just click on the Patreon button at reginameredith.com. That also gives you access to insider commentary, my live book club, and other live events with special guests. So join in. Thanks. I relate to what you're saying very strongly. Um, and I relate very, I remember um, one time, um, do you know who David Icke is by chance? I do. Yeah. So he, David Icke goes about it his way. He's here to uh, shine a light on some of the forces we're up against, but I know him fairly well. And one time when he was staying at my house, we were talking and I found this thing in him that was very interesting because it was in me. So of course we always recognize what's in ourselves and it has to do with what you say. And I said, I don't understand it. I don't understand the corruption in, in the program. I don't think evil is inherent. I can't even stand to watch uh, nature programs in which animal prey upon other animals. And that's where he and I really resonated very strongly. And that's his understanding and belief and, and question too. How did this corruption happen that we eat each other? That's fairly barbaric. And not only that, I, when you were talking about these stages that the Russian man had delineated, I remember Michu Kaku picking up on that work. And he said that humans are somewhere between a zero to zero. Zero 0.5 <laughs> civilization. We're uh, not even at stage one yet. One. So if you can take off on that a little bit, uh, this notion of the non-inherency of evil and uh, why it's constructed to be preyed upon, because we are being preyed upon. Yeah, absolutely. So let me use another metaphor, and then uh, that'll be the, my easing into the, into the question. Imagine you're given a jigsaw puzzle, you know, and it's 5,000 pieces of jigsaw puzzle, and you open the cellophane wrap, and you open the cover, and you tumble all the pieces onto your, onto your table. And the first thing you have to do is turn them over, because on one side, they're just 
they are brown cardboard. So you got to see the color, color pieces. And the next thing you always do typically is you're going to identify the four corner pieces. And so you're going to find the four corner pieces and you're going to combine the, the line, the straight edge pieces. That's going to give you a framework. And then you've got uh, three clues after that to assemble the jigsaw puzzle. You've got the contours of the individual pieces, whether or not they fit together. You've got the colors, the picture on the box. This is what the finished result is going to look like. Now, if you've ever done a jigsaw puzzle, at some stage, if it's a big puzzle, you're going to find that there are a lot of holes left in the puzzle and there's a lot of pieces on the side. And no matter where you try to put the pieces, they won't fit. And then you come to the offering lesson, damn it. This whole section here, I thought it fit, but it actually didn't. I'm going to have to disassemble those pieces and redistribute them. And then when I do that, I find out, you know, that now the extra pieces fit into the holes I've newly created. So uh, in the meantime, if I try to force them in there, I get a buckled jigsaw puzzle. Mm -hmm. I don't plan to get buckled, and I still have pieces left over, and I still have holes in it. Now, the buckled uh, jigsaw with the holes in it was not the part of the original plan. The one who designed the jigsaw puzzle wasn't hoping that you'd come up with a buckled jigsaw puzzle with holes in it and extra pieces left over. It was only because of uh, my ineptitude at assembling the pieces and seeing the dynamics that I wound up with the less than perfect version. But I've had the courage to disassemble the mis mistakes, to learn from my mistakes, and reassemble and come up with a configuration that shows me the picture on the box. And the picture on the box is always the face of God. And so in that sense, evil is not inherent to the system. Inherent is always the result of misplaying or misplacing the pieces. So uh, there is no sense in which evil has been part of God's program for planet Earth. But we're given free will because there's, there's a huge difference between free will and freedom. Free will is the ability to do as I please. Freedom is the ability to do as pleases God. So the only truly free person is the one who's making loving choices. Otherwise, I'm in trouble. I'm, you know, um, uh, dedicated and kind of handcuffed uh, to kind of selfishness. So there is no way in which evil or darkness was built into the system initially. It has to do with the way in which we exercise free will in order to create the situations of prey and predator in which we currently find ourselves. And so in that system where we have prey and predator, um, there has to be complicity on the part of the masses as well. Yeah. And now it might be benign. It might be simply exhaustion, fear, laziness, any number of things. But I'd like to look at it from, we understand that there are forces that have been um, exerting their influence, as you say. Um, so we'll just, we'll just leave that where it is. I've, most of the people watching this would feel comfortable with that statement. But now let's take the responsibility to our own level. Yes. and how we've been playing in this game as well and what's going to be required to bring it back up into that place that you're speaking of. I'm going to go out a little bit on a limited stage now, Regina, because in some senses, I think that uh, when I look at God in, in, uh, in many different spiritual models, there's like a Trinitarian form again and again and again. In Christianity, it's Father, Son, and Spirit. In Buddhism, it is Buddham Saranam Gachami, Dharmam Saranam Gachami, Sangam Saranam Gachami, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the community, I take refuge in the teaching. 
in um, Hinduism, there's Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, or Sat Chitananda. Um, in uh, Judaism, is the God who is the God who you know who creates covenants, and the God who invites or to uh, a response to come into uh, alignment with the, with the covenant. So there's this trinitarian formula. The problem with the Trinity is this: uh, um, there's the isness of God represented by the Father. There's God's total self-knowledge represented by the Son, and there's the love that, ha that God has for whom she knows herself to be, represented by the Holy Spirit. But uh, that model cannot experience that Trinitarian formula. If God is all there is, there is no possibility for experience. And so God self-fractures into what I call holographic fractals of self. And these are scattered like bees leaving a hive. And the function of the holographic fractals is to generate experiences for God. There is no other way in which God can experience because there is nothing which is not God. So God plays this game, which Hinduism will call the game of Leela. And it's a game in which God pretends to play hide and go seek with herself. And our job is to, while we're kind of stuck in the illusion of separation, to still remember who we are, that we are love. To still remember who we are, that we are light to still remember who we are, that we are Logos, to still remember who we are, that we are life, and to still remember who we are, that we are a laughter. So when I look at this initial, I, I call it the five L's. So the first one is pure love. And pure love bifurcates into light and Logos. Light is, we know from quantum mechanics that all matter is actually frozen light. But so we got matter from light. Logos is the organizing principle that creates form out of matter. So different frequencies create, you know, mountains or oak trees or bunny rabbits. And so light and logos dance together to create life, which is the fourth L. And the objective of life is to lead us to laughter. Because laughter is the first sign of enlightenment. Laughter at the illusion, which allowed me to think that I'm separate from nature that I'm separate from God, you know, that I'm separate from other people. So when I get that realization, the first thing I do, I need to laugh at the illusion. And then the second thing is, I need to try to help my brothers and sisters to wake up so they too can laugh at the illusion. Now, there are people who are dedicated to staying stuck in the illusion because it's, um, it's, it's, um, it's made them become the leaders of the controlling elite or the oligarchy, whatever word you want to use for it. Use for it. So it's this uh, uh, kind of control mechanism. Now, Buddhism tells us as well, or Hinduism tells us, that there are four great periods of incarnational activity, and there may be hundreds of lifetimes in each incarnation. The first group of incarnations is about uh, um, sensory pleasures, you know, uh, good wine, good food, good sex, whatever. And they say there's nothing wrong with that. But after several incarnations, you realize there must be more to incarnation than just, you know, sensory pleasure. So the second group is um, the realization of power, privilege, and control, the attraction of power, privilege, and control. Now, people who are addicts are only a danger to themselves and their immediate family. But people who are involved with power, privilege, and control are a danger to the entire world. So because they're going to grab power and they're going to create situations which literally they're going to suck the lifeblood out of the rest of us to maintain themselves. So that's a very, very dangerous stage in the incarnation trajectory. The third group of lives, they say, is um, uh, service. 
And that is realization. They're the Mother Teresa's the realization that we're all digits on the same finger. We're not separate from each other. We find our, our hand in a glove in which each of the fingers is colored differently. So we think we're separate. You take the glove off, it's the same hand. And so we're all just, you know, uh, manifestations of source. I say that everything that exists is simply God in drag. Everything is simply God in drag. So stage three uh, for Hinduism, the notion of dedication to service to others. But even that is an illusion because that's predicated on the notion of separation. And so the final stage is moksha, ultimate liberation, where you realize there is only God. And this is a game that God is playing. And when we begin waking up one by one by one, finally, there are enough people awake that there's a critical mass created so that we're not able to be sucked dry by the oligarchy anymore, because we can see through the illusions of the apparent control that they exercise. And they only exercise over it because we're afraid. When we surpass fear, there's no possibility of control by others. And we've been literally compelled toward fear by what we're being exposed to, by algorithms, by AI, by human beings with the agendas you're talking about. And one thing that's happened is we have become humorless as a species ourselves. certainly amidst the backdrop of the last couple of years. What extreme exploitation of human fear this whole COVID thing was. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. People are contending with it however they can. And it's not easy when you have varying levels of consciousness within any given tribe or group or family or workplace. And so the people that are watching this right now are often the outliers, those who are really have gone against the grain of common belief of family and have found their way toward you, toward us uh, right now. And I would love for you to be able to speak a little bit to that because we still want to belong to family. Right. We, we want to have relationships, uh, but we don't want to fall into those traps. So if you could give a little homily uh, to, to those of us, that would be great. And I also want to know why you always call God she. So answer the last question first, because, you know, any language that purports to speak about God is, is, is parabolic. So there are four languages that are employed when people speak about God. The first one is cataphatic language. These are Greek terms. Cataphatic language is the language that theologians use. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? That kind of ridiculous, you know, mishigas. The second kind of language is called apophatic language. It's the language of neti neti. X? No, God is not X. Y? God is not Y. Z? God is not Z. Or the Zen Buddhist koan. What is the, what did your original face look like before your great grandparents were born? So, you know, it's a language that goes beyond intellect. So the third kind of language then is parabolic language. If you're going to have to talk about God, particularly if you're a teacher, then you're going to have to use stories and parables, which is exactly what Jesus did. So that's the third kind of language. And that's the only language in which you can meaningfully kind of talk about experiences of God. And the fourth kind of language is just anthropological, as you trace the evolution of people's belief in their gods. So the reason I used she very often is that we've constantly regarded God as this bearded figure in the sky, this male figure. And so to kind of uh, uh, stop people in their tracks and realize that describing of gender or sex to God is absolutely meaningless. There are simply metaphors we use. And so if we're going to use metaphors of father love, we should balance it by using metaphors of mother love. In fact, for most people, as little kids particularly, mother love is essential to survival. 
of even childhood. So I constantly use, you know, uh, female pronouns of God just to wake people up and realize all pronouns uh, kind of used of God are kind of, kind of ludicrous because God is basically ineffable. God is inarticulatable. We can experience God, but we cannot articulate that experience because by the time you articulate an experience of God, you're four stages away from the experience. There's the experience, which is ineffable. There's the residual symbol light or love or whatever. There's the concept of which you try to articulate it. And then there's a theology in which you try to kind of uh, make a theory out of it. And by then, you're three stages away from the actual experience. So God is ineffable. So ascribing any pronouns to God is meaningless. And so I mix them around. Yeah. So I appreciate that. It does, because it always gets everyone's attention. Now let's talk to the people who really don't want to be disassociated from other human beings, but at the same time, can't buy the BS anymore. Yes, good. I say that I'm really, really happy if there are people out there who are listening to Regina and me today, that uh, it is time, somebody said famously a few weeks ago, it's time not to wake up the sheep anymore. We don't have time to wake up the sheep. We need to wake up the other lions. And so the people who are meant to be thought leaders in their communities or in their families, the meme makers, the storytellers. You have to become storytellers who can transform your audiences, whether the audiences is simply people around your, your dining room table on Thanksgiving Day, you know, or your, your, your family, your extended family, or your community, whatever it is. Uh, you must be able to tell stories that transform people, that subsidize uh, fear with love. Uh, you must realize that we're at a bifurcation point an orchestrated bifurcation point where there's, it's actually a trifurcation. I used to think it was a bifurcation, it's actually a trifurcation. The first uh, breakaway group is what I call homo spiritualis. People who are waking up to the realization that they're holographic fractals of God. And we're here to learn how to love in all configurations. The second part is I call homo sociopathicus. The elite and the oligarchy who are dedicated to controlling us through fear and through warfare and through greed and the appropriation of resources. And the third group I now call homo artificialis, that they are literally trying to create a transhuman being who will be part bionic and part artificial intelligence. And I, I think that there have been many ways over the last 40 or 50 years in which they've actually seeded this process to make human beings actually hackable and programmable so that there'll be a small set of homo artificialis that will serve the needs of homo sociopathicus. But, but there's going to be this kind of um, this transformation that homo spiritualis will begin resonating at a frequency where it is beyond the mere physical articulation of this, I call this the space of and even if Homo sociopathicus were to destroy the physical planet itself through some kind of global disaster, planet Earth itself is an ancient soul. Gaia, Pachamama, you could call her many names. Pachamama has many different levels of body as well. There's the physical space of the Pachamama. There's the etheric space of the Pachamama. There's the astral space of the Pachamama. There's the mental space of the Pachamama. There's the psychic space of the Pachamama. Pachamama. There's the soul space of Pachamama, and then there's source space of Pachamama. She is going to ascend. She will not be destroyed. She may have to transform so that she is no longer even visible 
to homo sociopathicus who have destroyed themselves and then attempted to go to Mars or elsewhere, you know, off planet or whatever. But uh, so the, 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 um, the job for us who are waking up is to resist the temptation to become homo artificialis, whether it's through a vaccination campaign or GMO crops or 5G or whatever the agenda is that's creating this ability of the elite to literally hack and program the human psyche. Those of you who are listening and who are awake to that realization, you have to start making choices to resist becoming homo artificialis, uh, to, uh, to uh, confront homo sociopathicus and to grow and to uh, embrace becoming homo spiritualis. Now, our time has come. This is the next stage of the evolution of, uh, of, of life on planet Earth. I had a great um, vision many, many years ago in which I saw a great soul stand in front of Gaia, of God and volunteer for incarnation. And this one soul whom I call Gaia volunteered and said to God, send me to that third planet from the sun in that solar system and I will breed life until I breed a life form which is capable of recognizing its own divinity and ipso facto the divinity of all other life forms with which it shares the planet. And Homo sapiens sapiens is right on the verge of that. We're either going to break down or we're going to break through. If we break through, we have become Homo spiritualis. If we break down, we have become Homo sociopathicus. Uh, okay, well, I could um, take this conversation at this point about 20 different directions. Um, I love what you had to say. I happen to be in agreement on you. There's a matter of soul. We have an issue of what happens to the soul when we start denigrating into either the sociopathic or the artificial bionic combination. Where does the soul go? What, has, what does that have to do with? And as you said, uh, Mother Earth, Gaia, um, Pachamama is elevating her own frequencies. And my understanding is it's all about frequencies. If our frequencies can't meet where she is, how can we even continue incarnating? And you already answered that. You say we go go to Mars, we can go somewhere else where our frequencies meet. I love I really love what you just had to say. And thank you for that in terms of the invitation of what we want to evolve into and away from, ideally. So any final comments? And then I want to come back and have several more conversations with you. You I've been writing notes here. There's so much more to discuss. So any final comment before we sign off? One final comment, Virginia. And I love this conversation. You're an amazing kind of a conversationalist. I would say mass in this very room. I say mass here every Sunday for my community. It's a Zoom mass. I bring an altar out here. I have a meditation upstairs and I have a Tibetan singing bowl there. And two Sundays ago during mass, uh, they played a piece from, I may have been uh, uh, Deva Prima, uh, singing a Hindu or a Buddhist song. And obviously... Oh, I love her. Deva Prima, yes. Whatever instrument she was playing, all of a sudden up behind me in my meditation room, my Tibetan bowl was singing because it was resonating at the exact frequency of whatever she was playing. So it's coming through my computer into my sitting room, upstairs to my meditation room, and hitting the, the Buddhist, uh, uh, the Tibetan uh, singing bowl, and it sang the entire song with it vibrated at the entire frequency. So that's what I mean. When light frequencies meet, they recognize each other. And yes. so after the bifurcation point, 
only those souls that resonate with a particular frequency will be drawn together. And it's not that the others will be banned. It's not that there's heaven and hell and there's St. Peter at the gates and you can't come up here. It is not. It's that they won't resonate at the frequency. They won't be drawn to it. They'll, they'll find it distasteful, you know, and they will go where the resonance, you know, is in alignment with their own frequencies. So with that in mind, we understand then that over this process and period of time, as Earth continues to lift herself where she needs to be, we have to stay in step with that or we go somewhere else. That would mean that life on Earth is only going to become more and more refined, cohesive, beautiful, unlike the dystopian stories that are being thrown out there by the media to frighten us, by Hollywood, etc. Would that be correct? It is absolutely correct. So literally, this is a battle for the soul of Gaia and for the soul of all its inhabitants, human and, and, uh, and animal and vegetable, flora and fauna alike. It literally is a battle for the soul of the planet itself. And so it becomes really important, you know, you are not doing this for yourself, whoever you are listening to this. You're not even doing it for your immediate family. You're doing it for the family of life on Pachamama. Yes. Thank you so much, Sean. We're going to have many more conversations and I would love to see if I could coax you to get on a plane and also join me uh, at, uh, at Gaia in Boulder, Colorado. So we'll talk about that in a little later. Meanwhile, thank you so much for coming on with me. I so appreciate your wisdom and I look forward to so many more of these truly enlightening conversations with you. Meanwhile, you have a new book out, Setting God Free. And tell yeah. us the subtitle. I love oh, the subtitle. Here it is called... Um, setting God free, moving beyond the uh, caricature we've created in our own image. So it's a book in which I put, actually put God on trial for crimes against humanity and held a, a prosecution and a defense and a verdict. And the verdict was that, that the God we've created in our own image is a projection of the human shadow rather than an articulation, an articulation of who she really is. I love it. Um, I have it. I've already downloaded it on Kindle. It's next on in my queue. So I'm going to be uh, taking a read before I talk to you next time. Uh, meanwhile, if anyone wants to find you, they can uh, go to your website, which I'll give them in just a moment. So Sean, again, thank you. Thank you for your lifetime of thoughtfulness, of care, and uh, the ability to articulate in such an amazing way. Your grandfather would be proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to go and check out Sean, work any further, including the other books he's written, find out what he's up to, how you can connect with him, how you can find him at the Sunday Mass, you can go to spiritsinspacesuits.com, most appropriate for our friend whom I lovingly call the Druid. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on reginameredith.com.